This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. We're just about a month away from the Ontario provincial election, and today we'll debut our brand new in-depth Zoomer election panel. Over the next few weeks, I'll be joined by our very own Dale Goldhawk, CARP's VP of Advocacy, Susan Eng, and John Wright, Senior VP of Ipsos Global. We'll sort through the issues that affect Zoomers and recap the week on the campaign trail. The night that he died, my sister happened to be awake in her bedroom in Montreal, and she had the experience of sensing a presence in her bedroom. Plus, award-winning journalist Patricia Pearson recently went on a sort of spiritual journey. After extraordinary events surrounding the death of her father and her sister, she decided to try to figure out one of life's greatest mysteries, what happens to us when we die. What she found is in her new book, Opening Heaven's Door, what the dying may be trying to tell us about where they're going. And she'll join us later on. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the flip side of Zoomers living longer lives. The federal Auditor General says public pension plans could cost taxpayers billions of dollars as retiring public servants live longer. Michael Ferguson says the pension plans pose a significant threat to the government's bottom line because little attention is being paid to looming risks. He recommends that public pensions be evaluated periodically and undergo any necessary changes to ensure their sustainability. He projects that the government's share of pension benefit costs for the three main government plans could climb from just over $3 billion in 2017 to $13.5 billion by 2050. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is questioning the value of taking a daily aspirin to ward off a heart attack or stroke in people who've never had cardiovascular problems. An FDA consumer update says people should use daily aspirin therapy only after talking to a healthcare professional who can assess the benefits and risks. German drug maker Bayer AG had requested a change to the labeling on aspirin to advocate taking it for primary prevention of heart attacks. The FDA turned down the labeling change last week. I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the people. And the country itself, of course, it's so gorgeous. It's such an extraordinary melange of types and things, but always with the sea, always with the sea in the background. Uh, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the world that combines the best of wilderness and the least obnoxious of civilization. This week, we lost Farley Mowat, one of Canada's best-known authors, literary characters, and staunch environmentalists. Mowat died at his home in Port Hope at the age of 92. He was the renowned author of dozens of works, including Lost in the Barrens and Never Cry Wolf, 
and he introduced Canada to readers around the world. In his works, Mowat shared everything from his time abroad during the Second World War to his travels in the North and his concern for the deteriorating environment. Mowat won the Governor General's Award for Lost in the Barrens in 1956, and in 1970 he was awarded the Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for Humor for the boat that wouldn't float. He became an officer of the Order of Canada in 1981. I'm Louise Neimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Now we bring you the first edition of our Zoomer election panel, which will run every Sunday until just after Ontario goes to the polls on June 12th. We'll be focusing on the issues that are important to Zoomers, and Zoomers are the demographic that votes. We're here with John Wright, Senior VP of Ipsos Global, Susan Eng, CARP's VP of Advocacy, and Dale Goldhawk, host of Goldhawk Fights Back. First of all, uh, I'd like your sense of how the first week went. Let's start with you, John. One thing has happened, and that is that uh, Mr. Hudak, in fact, outside of Toronto, has made a great march forward. Uh, what's fueling the vote for the Conservative Party is uh, one thing, and that is uh, people want to get out and vote this government out. So what you have is a very efficient vote for the uh, Conservatives outside of uh, the, in the 905 and outside in the other regions of the province. The NDP strong in the north and competitive in the southwest. The only place that the Liberals have any hope at the moment is in Toronto. Susan, what do you think? First week. First week, I think there have been a couple of stumbles, and certainly on the issues that we're watching, uh, there hasn't been a lot of noise um, on the issue of pensions, not yet. Um, I think that the issue of trustworthiness has become a big one this, this week. This million job plan does touch on the nerve of one of those issues that matters to everybody, including older Canadians, including Zoomers, because they care about what's happening to their kids. And so at this point, you know, I, 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 it's up for grabs as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Dale, what do you think? Well, what I'm hearing from the people that I uh, talk to uh, every day is uh, that overall feeling of, oh, good grief, we're going to have to pick someone from this bunch. I don't hear great accolades for uh, anybody. I hear as many complaints and criticisms of uh, the premier as I do of, uh, as I do of Tim Hudak. Uh, um, Andrea Horvath seems to have disappeared from that particular level of conversation. Whether or not that will change uh, sometime soon, uh, I, I don't know. John, Kudak is kind of personally unpopular. He had a few missteps right at the beginning. Are you saying that he's overcoming that? And on the other hand, the word is that Wynn is likable. What do you make of those factors? Well, you know what? I think it comes down to much the same way the campaign ran the last time, and that was that Tim Hudak was 10 points ahead, and, and now, you know, and then he fell back and people chose another party. <clears throat> what was interesting it was on Friday uh, when, when he made an announcement in Barrie, which essentially said that in two years he was going to cut, you ready for it, 100,000 jobs from the public service. He, he actually put a number on it. Uh, I, I, it's incredibly audacious, but more importantly, that will become a central issue of contention now because a lot of people, I think, in other parts will say, well, geez, that's, you know, that's ripping the government to pieces. That'll set apart a, a war of attrition. It will also cause great disruption and potentially downsizing all kinds of services which make us okay. What I find interesting in all of this is that 
you know, if Tim Hudak wasn't as aggressive on these fronts, he'd probably win. But in the course of a campaign, he says some things, whether it be on, you know, immigrant workers or other things that tend to bring him down. In, yeah, in he over, John, I think he overshoots because now his million job plan <laughs> is going to have to be $1.1 million. Exactly. <laughs> Well, and, and immediately you can see um, of Kathleen Wynne taking that up as a cudgel to use against the very man who brought it up. 100,000 jobs going to be ripped out of the public service. We're hard-pressed now. What are we going to do with 100,000 fewer jobs? I'm looking at this first week and thinking, what is this election about and who is leading the agenda? Because Kathleen Wynne seemed to be taking on the federal government the, the NDP wanted to make it about the Liberals, and suddenly Hudak jumps in with jobs, and suddenly everybody's talking about jobs. So what's it about? I think it's about uh, trustworthiness. Who do you trust to be premier of this province? And that's really what's coming through with people making stuff up. You know, Andrea Horvath was saying, well, they're going to privatize the TTC. Well, that <laughs> huh? was flat wrong, <laughs> flat wrong. So don't say stuff like that. You're the leader of a party. You have to be, be properly briefed. If you're going to make an accusation, make sure you've got your facts. And here we yeah. have Kathleen Wynne taking aim at Stephen Harper going that route, and the Harper government happily <laughs> obliges her and starts warring with Kathleen Wynne. That means another day or two that Kathleen Wynne doesn't have to defend the record of the Liberal government, including those power plants, the hugest elephant in the room that there is. John, what do you think the election's about so far? Well, I actually think that it hasn't galvanized yet. Let's put it this way, that usually during the course of the campaign, uh, some other issue than we all started out with actually turns the corner. So uh, I'm sure Pauline Merois did not expect Pierre Palladot to pump his fist in the air and say about <laughs> a referendum. And, and the same with uh, you know Tim Hudak in the last campaign saying some things that he did. I, I think that this has been a uh, poor start for the NDP, but we still have a, a long turf to run. I think it's a strong start for the Tories, but it's not about your base that matters. It's about keeping the other 10 to 12 percent that you need to get into power in the question is whether that's going to bleed. I wonder about, you know, whether the, the, the performance of the Liberal Party will be, you know, caught up in, you know, such a huge spending circumstance and a lot of other people questioning it, but also the legacy of the gas plants and things like that and whether the NDP might come up the middle. So I, I'm not really sure what what the ballot question is at the moment, but I think at the end of this week with Mr. Hudak's pronouncements, it might be more about the style of what you want your government to be. And so you're you're setting up a ballot question of fear versus anger. And bang, we could be off to a totally different race next week. So it'll be very interesting to watch. Oh, I think that is the perfect note to wrap things up on. Uh, We could go on for a long time, but we'll be doing this every week. Thank you all. Thank Thank you. you. We'll be bringing you a weekly edition of this panel every Sunday until after the vote. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. What happens when we die? It's a question that has preoccupied us since the dawn of time. In just a moment, we'll talk to Patricia Pearson, author of Opening Heaven's Door, what the dying may be trying to tell us about where they're going. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Next, I want to tell you about a book I couldn't put down in spite of myself. 
Award-winning journalist Patricia Pearson decided to explore what happens at the moment of death after some inexplicable and extraordinary experiences in her own family. She's put together fascinating accounts of near-death experiences and phenomena like nearing-death awareness, which many people apparently experience. The book is Opening Heaven's Door, What the Dying May Be Trying to Tell Us About Where They're Going. I had been part of a family that didn't think very much altogether about spirituality or religion until my father and sister died in 2008. And my father died very unexpectedly. And the night that he died, my sister happened to be awake in her bedroom in Montreal. And she had the experience of sensing a presence in her bedroom and then feeling hands gently cupping the back of her head. Um, And then she was suffused with an incredible sense of joy and contentment for a couple of hours, actually. And then we found out that my father had died, and then my sister herself died of cancer about nine weeks later. So that was a very startling um, and astonishing experience for us as a family. And for Catherine, she felt very strongly that my father had gone to her in that night. So I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to know if it had happened to other people. I wanted to know what the odds were. I wanted to know what the research on it was. And that's what set me on the whole journey. Now, you're saying that this experience is very common, but it's very rare for people to talk about it. Your sister actually brought it up at your father's funeral. Yeah, that's right. And and it, it is very unusual for people to talk about. And um, what I found is that when, once I started doing the research, so many people would come up to me and say, well, I've never told anyone this but. And then they would confide it as if it was an illegal experience or a, an embarrassing experience. And so that gives you this sense of this kind of subterranean culture all around us of people who are having all kinds of sort of really profound and meaningful um, experiences around death and dying that for some reason we've decided we're not allowed to talk about. What are the common things that you found? What I found is that there there seems to be some kind of um, connectivity between human beings that manifests as... People will pick up on distress of family members. They don't necessarily have to be dying, but they'll even pick up on their distress. Somebody will wake up and they'll see their father who's just passed away at the end of their bed. Um, About 5% of these experiences are like a visual. Most of them aren't. Or they'll be in a situation of themselves of plight um, or danger, and they'll find a, a sensed presence assisting them. And... Also, when my sister was dying, and I I talked to a lot of hospice staff about this, um, dying people, if they're not overly medicated or if they're not confused by the drug, the disease process, um, will actually have visions of people who've died waiting for them to take them, to accompany them, or at least that's how they experience it. So it's very consoling. I interviewed a number of people who'd had deep near-death experiences as well. And for me, the most important thing to take away from it was that when we are in situations of crisis or we are dying, these kind of witnesses are telling us that what we experience in those moments is not frightening. But in fact, we can feel blissful, we can feel contented, and we can feel um, that we aren't alone. You also talk about a phenomenon where people sometimes know exactly when they're going to die. That is a sort of special state of consciousness that seems to include these deathbed visions. It also includes seeming to know when they're going to die, even though there's no medical prognosis that would support that. And that actually happened to my sister, because she was never told 
you know, you've got three months to live or you've got 10 days to live or anything like that. But about 48 hours before she died, she said, I'm leaving. Um, so there's like a kind of, um, they become infused with a kind of knowledge and it's a, and they never talk about it in terms of, you know, I'm about to be annihilated or I'm about to, they, they don't even say I'm about to die, that they talk about it in terms of journey. Where's my ticket? Where's my passport? I want to put my shoes on, that kind of thing. Now, the subtitle of your book is uh, What the Dying May Be Trying to Tell Us About Where They're Going. So do you have conclusions about that? Why did Steve Jobs say, wow, oh, wow, when he was dying? So that took me to interviewing people who'd had these near-death experiences. And then when you interview them, what they'll say universally, like there's no inconsistency in it, is that they experience themselves as being merged in a Um, a powerful light that was more than light. It was a love and it was a wisdom. They were still themselves, but they were part of this kind of mm, what's called the unio mystica, this kind of ocean of consciousness. And none of the people who have near-death experiences say, oh, this was a Christian experience or this was a Muslim experience. On the contrary, they often leave their religious institutions afterwards. What do you make of that? I think I'll have to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what to make of it. But I'll tell you what's important, I think, is I'd put my money on the meaningfulness of it to the people who have it. Where we're falling short in in our society talking about this is that we're so intent upon explaining it away scientifically that we're missing the radical profoundness of these experiences to our us as people. Well, that's interesting. Patricia Pearson, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Opening Heaven's Door is published by Random House Canada. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. The piano man, Billy Joel, had his 65th birthday this week. Coming up, we'll celebrate with some of his music. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Mary Martin was a giant of American musical theater in the 1950s. Now a fast-moving review called Inventing Mary Martin is delighting audiences at the theater at St. Peter's on 54th Street at Lexington. Over in New Jersey, a larger-than-life sculpture of Marilyn Monroe is now on display. The 8-meter-tall Forever Marilyn, created by 84-year-old sculptor Seward Johnson, is just outside the state capital of Trenton. And in Egypt, visitors can tour a life-size replica of the tomb of fabled King Tutankhamun. The replica is two meters underground in the Valley of Kings. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Billy Joel celebrated his 65th birthday. He's been an internationally renowned artist since releasing his first hit song, Piano Man, in 1973. Joel has had 33 top 40 hits in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all of which he wrote himself. He's also a six-time Grammy Award winner who has been nominated for 23 Grammy Awards throughout his career. Billy Joel retired from rock and roll songwriting after he released his last album, River of Dreams, in 1993. 
Still, the Zoomer icon continues to tour around the world, playing hit songs from his lengthy career to large stadium audiences. Right now, we'll travel back to 1980 to hear the number one song from his album, Glass Houses. Here's It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back to the age of jive. Where have you been hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress as flashy till you spend a lot of money. Everybody's talking about the new sound. Funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. What's the matter with the car I'm driving? Can't you tell that it's out of style? Should I get a set of white wall tires? Are you gonna cruise the Miracle Mile? Nowadays you can't be too sentimental. Your best bet's a true baby blue continental. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, it's still rock and roll to me. Billy Joel with It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Joel celebrated his 65th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week when we talk to the Oscar-winning producer of The Lady in Number 6. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.